0: Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at racing driver relationships and what we can learn from them. Plus, when in life you find yourself at the very top of your game, leader of the pack, or in Formula One terms, having designed a car that some people think is perfection, where on earth do you go next? Welcome back to lane lane Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's that's a failure. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. Thank you so much for joining wherever it is you are in the world, whatever it is you're up to whilst listening, however it is you're listening. I appreciate every single one of you. So thank you very much for spending the next hour with me. It's much appreciated. Um, I want to start this week by talking about relationships, particularly around Formula One and specifically off the back of what we saw last time out in Saudi Arabia, where Red Bull, who we know have a very dominant car, and we'll talk about that more in the second half of today's show, but they've got such a dominant car, they're in a race of their own. The championship is almost certainly, and I think even this early in the season, we can say with some security that the championship is almost impossible to go to anybody other than a Red Bull driver. Now, that's a big claim at this early stage after just two rounds, but that's how dominant the team and the car are. So when we start to get a situation when your biggest rival, perhaps the only guy standing in the way between you and the biggest prize in the sport, the thing you may have dreamt of as a racing driver since you were a small child, might be the guy on the other side of your own garage, tensions can start to rise relationships can start to break down. I have seen it. I've witnessed it. I've been part of it uh, over my time in Formula One at McLaren. It's very well documented. 2007, particularly good example of this or bad example, however you look at it. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso was my biggest experience, almost extreme experience, but I've experienced it with other driver pairings too. Formula One drivers are selfish individuals. They have to be to achieve the kind of success that they need to achieve in their careers. But it's also a team sport. And that provides a really difficult paradox for Formula One teams to try and manage sometimes. In the most part, it's not a really big issue. Because in the most part, when you're not fighting for a championship, there is far less pressure on you. There's less eyeballs looking at you. There's less focus and less attention on you. In the most part, in fact, in most teams and in most years, you tend to find that one of your two drivers naturally becomes more dominant than the other. In terms of their performances, their ability, their talent, whether they got a bit of luck that year, whatever it might be, one driver tends to, at some point in the season, end up on top. And therefore, there's an unspoken natural leadership tendency towards your lead driver. Now, that's relatively common. And in those situations, the relationship between those drivers, in my experience, is always kind of friendly, or not always, but quite often friendly, bubbly, jovial, because there's less at stake, quite simply. There is no championship on the line. The world is not necessarily talking about your two drivers and your particular car and team. But at Red Bull this year, and this is the latest example of this, but we've had multiple examples over the years. At Red Bull, it's looking highly likely that the championship will go to one of those Red Bull drivers. Now, I'm sure most people will assume that's going to be Max Verstappen. Max Verstappen, the current world champion, a two-time world champion, uh, the guy who has been absolutely the most dominant of those drivers, of that driver pairing in recent years. Uh, Many people would see him as the team leader, a team favourite, if you like, a team number one. But that's not something that's necessarily written into a contract. And as things stand after two races, the drivers are just separated by one point in the championship. And what I wanted to talk about was what we started to see a little bit more at the tail end of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, round two of the championship, where Checo Perez, well, to be fair, dominated that race and was better, was quicker, was faster, uh, was put in a better performance than Max Verstappen on the day. Now, that was one particular day on one particular circuit. It's a very small data set uh, to measure any driver from. But on that particular day, it was Checo's day. He absolutely nailed it. He did a great job and he won the Grand Prix. Of course, Max was hampered by reliability problems in qualifying, started the race back in 15th. I know all of those caveats and that may well have changed the outcome had Max been at the front of the, the field for the start of the race. Absolutely. But as we stand, the drivers are separated by just one point, and we started to see tensions creeping in between the two. There were little jibes on the radio about one guy being allowed to go faster than the other, constantly looking over their shoulder at what the other guy was doing, asking on the radio what lap times the other driver was doing, asking for some kind of limits or parameters which, with, with which they could set themselves limits so that they don't have to push or risk the car too much but that they also know they're not going to risk the position or risk losing time to what they see as their main rival the other guy on the other side of the team we saw all of that playing out and then on the final lap we saw that situation where Max took the fastest lap away from Checo Checo then went into the cool down room and there was this little power play subtle power play where Max sort of Sat himself down in Checo's chair, didn't really speak to Checo, but when he congratulated uh, Fernando Alonso, there was all of those things going on. I'm sure we all noticed them. Little subtle power plays between two guys who, as this season develops, almost certainly will become each other's fiercest enemies in one sense and teammates in another sense. That's a difficult challenge for a team to manage. Now, given that we started to see these little chinks in the armour or cracks in the relationship, if we put it like that, this early on, it's not surprising to me. As I said, I've seen it many, many times over the years. It's almost natural in Formula One circles because the way the game is structured, we have these two championships which almost go against each other in terms of what they need from a driver pairing in order to win. The team need the drivers to work together for the good of the team. The drivers need to work for themselves, for the good of themselves. They want to win the Drivers' World Championship, and sometimes that will mean doing it at the expense of the guy on the other side of their own team team garage. That's the nature of the way Formula 1's set up. So from a team perspective, managing a relationship can be very difficult. And one of the things I wanted to talk about in this particular section of the podcast today was managing driver relationships and how that can impact what we do in our daily lives. I wanted to talk about the challenges that I've seen over the years in managing Formula One driver relationships and what I've learned from them that I can now apply to the relationships in my life. Here's what I've learned. I've learned that two drivers squabbling amongst themselves in many ways are like children. The job of a management structure in a Formula One team is not dissimilar to the job of parents in a family setup. The children are narcissistic. All children, by the way, are narcissistic as they emerge in life. That's a human trait. You have to think about yourself. You have to be self-centered to some extent, because in the very early days, it was part of our survival instincts. You have to look after yourself. And as we grow up, we emerge into tribes. We start to appreciate the tribes and the, the teams, people around us, uh, the collectives, the societies, the, uh, the groups of people that we emerge in society with. In life, we start to have to appreciate those. We have to start to put some of those first. And there's a huge number of benefits for doing that. But in the beginning, we're quite narcissistic people. Humans are narcissistic in their earliest days. Racing drivers are the same. Racing drivers, for the reasons I've just explained, are narcissistic to some extent. They have to think about themselves first because that's how they're going to get the best results. When they're out on the racetrack, of course, in the middle of that race, they can't think about anybody else. They want to think about getting their own elbows out, getting themselves in front. It's a scrap to get to the end of that race first. That's the very nature of the game that we're playing in Formula One. It's about winning. It's not about coming second. The guy who gets the victory spoils gets all of the credit. We focus all of our attention on that guy. We celebrate that guy. We give them rewards. So, of course, it's totally natural they need to win. And in cases, they do anything to get to that point of victory. In life, of course, sometimes the spoils are still pretty significant. In business, we also want to win. We want to have the kind of financial recompense that we think we deserve for doing a decent job. We want to be the top of our tree in our business sector. We want to be the best. We want to outperform the competition in many of the same ways we do that in Formula One terms too. But in terms of our relationships in life, as we emerge and we grow up and become teenagers and move towards adulthood, we're constantly being taught and have to appreciate that it's not all about us. And actually, the idea of helping others and doing things for others, serving others, actually gives us a huge number of rewards in return. And actually, being selfless rather than selfish is probably the deciding factor in the ultimate success of life in this big game of life that we're playing. It's not quite the same in Formula One. We don't structure Formula One in the same way. Being selfless in Formula One and saying, no, no, after you, no, no, after you into this corner, you go first, I'll follow. That's never going to work. So from a management perspective, when I talk about the similarities of parenthood to managing Formula One racing drivers, there is this divergence. As parents and their children get to a certain stage in life, they go off down a slightly different path. Racing drivers will maintain that same path of selfishness and narcissism, and having to do whatever it takes to get them to the finish line first. That's where things differ. However, there are a huge number of similarities all the way through that. And ultimately, when you think about it, it's just managing people. It's looking after people. It's helping people, giving people what they need to succeed in the situation they're in. So in Formula One terms, one of the things I learnt in the most harsh way from 2007 when we had Fernando Alonso and we had Lewis Hamilton, two of the greatest drivers in Formula One history. I don't think many people would disagree with that. Certainly two of the greatest, most complete drivers I've ever worked with. When they were both in the same team in 2007, well, the story is a well-documented one. It was an utter disaster. And as a team, we failed miserably to manage that situation well. And in the end, it almost certainly cost us the championship. It cost us the biggest prize in the sport because we mismanaged our two drivers. I mean, it wasn't all because of that, but that was a big part of it. The relationship between those two drivers broke down to such a significant level that it actually pulled the entire team apart. It ripped our team down the middle and put a big divide down the middle of our garage. And when we talk about teams, and I've been doing so much research into this at the moment, the chapter of my new book that I'm currently writing, the chapter I'm on right now is all about teams and teamwork. And this topic features heavily because when you take a team of people, one of the strengths of a group of a good team, of a well-organized team is that you can achieve more together than you ever can on, a, on your own. So if you take that analogy and you say, well, look at what happened in 2007 with the two best drivers in the world, a wonderful car, the best car on the grid, an incredible team, well-financed, everything in place to win the world championship. But what we actually did was we divided our team down the middle. We split our team into two smaller teams that were just opposing each other, that were fighting each other, that single focus goal of each of those two teams in the end became to overthrow the other one. It became to overturn any successes that might have gone the other way. And instead of thinking bigger picture about how we might win the world championship, what we needed to do as a team to maximise our results... Our single minded focus was on making sure that we did better than the guys on the other side of our own garage. It was a disastrous example of how not to run a team well. So I learnt a huge amount. And by the way, it's absolutely no coincidence that just 12 months later, we won the world championship, having put all of those lessons into practice that we learnt through the disaster of doing it wrong in 2007. Some of those things that I learned were how we treated the drivers, how we communicated with those drivers. And when I talk about Formula One drivers here, you can hear the words people, children, friends, colleagues, family members, the members of the team that you're in. And by that, I mean any team. It could be the team of people around you at work. It could be the team that live in your house, your family, your team of friends. It could be any team that you're a part of in life. I'm referring to Formula One drivers, but the same advice is absolutely applicable to almost any relationship that we're in. If we think about two Formula One drivers, take 2007 as this example, what we did so badly in that particular year was we did not communicate clearly enough our strategy for the year in that particular season. Now, our strategy back then, having the current world champion, Fernando Alonso, and this young rookie, Lewis Hamilton, our strategy was, of course, to win the world championship. And we never really defined how we were going to go about doing that. We didn't define a number one and a number two driver. It was this implied theory that Fernando Alonso being the world champion and Lewis Hamilton being nothing more than a young rookie with plenty of potential but no experience... Of course, we had this unwritten rule that Fernando would be the number one driver, and Lewis Hamilton would be the guy learning from the master, honing his craft, and gradually getting closer and closer. But we never vocalised that. We never wrote it down anywhere. We never discussed it. We never defined what that strategy would look like. Now, that wasn't the only strategy we could have had. We could have equally had a strategy where we decided... To not have a number one and number two driver, we could have gone down the route of being very open and equal between the two, giving equal opportunities to each driver and saying, listen, you're both on a completely equal status here. There is no number one and number two. You will both have the same opportunities. There will be no advantage to one or the other. You'll get the same technology as it comes through. No one will get a front wing before the other one does. No one's gonna get preference on strategy in an unfair way. These are how we're going. This is how we're going to do it. These are the rules of engagement over the course of the season. And this is our plan. But we didn't even do that. So because we had no strategy vocalized or communicated because we didn't speak to our drivers, the members of our team and say, this is how we're going to go and attack the season. We have everything in place, but we didn't. We kept it quiet. We kept it to ourselves. We assumed this unwritten rule that Fernando would just be quicker. And when he wasn't, when Lewis Hamilton became just as fast as him within a few races, it caused us all manner of problems. It caused us problems because Lewis all of a sudden wasn't willing to accept this unspoken number two status. In his mind, quite rightly, he was just as quick and on some days quicker. But we'd never talked about it. And so even though it was implied or assumed, Lewis, in his mind, was absolutely not willing to accept that. And because we'd never had a discussion around it, that started to cause problems. He'd got Lewis's back up all of a sudden. And because Lewis was now as quick and pushing Fernando and on occasions beating him, of course the same thing happened on the other side of the garage. Fernando, who had this assumed number one position, this assumed position of power within the team, all of a sudden was seemingly having that undermined by this young rookie who turned up out of nowhere and was suddenly pushing him around the racetrack. On occasions, dragging him around the racetrack. The problem at the heart of all of that was not that we had two highly competitive racing drivers, it was that we didn't communicate an equal and fair status between the two of them. And if you want to refer this back to the relationships in your lives, think about it this way. People talk about children as a great example. If you've got children in your family, let's say two children, of course they want to know they've got some kind of equal status. They want to know they are loved by the same amount by their parents. They want to know that they're going to be heard by the people around them. They want to know that they have got a voice just like their brother or sister has got a voice in this little mini society that we call a family. The same thing happens at work. The people in your office, whether you're an employer or you're an employee, a team leader or part of any team in any business, you need to feel heard. You need to feel like the people around you value what you can offer. Value the experience that you've got, value your opinions. And to know that you're valued means that you have to be heard and listened to. We talked about listening last week. Relationships are centered around people listening to you. So when we go back to this analogy of the Formula One drivers, communication and communicating the equal status or communicating a plan in a very clear way, having that conversation up front where people can chip in, they can put their opinions forward, but ultimately we decide on a plan. Whether that's completely agreed on or not, that's not always the case, by the way. Sometimes the hierarchy within this structure may have to lay down the law. If we can't ever agree on this hierarchy situation, it may be that the boss of the company, it may be that the CEO, the leader of that team has to step in and say, right, I've heard all of your thoughts. I appreciate what everyone's saying. I've taken it all on board. I have considered everybody's opinions and arguments for this. But ultimately, because we didn't get consensus, I have had to make a decision. And because I'm the leader of this group and I want you to trust me and I want you to back me, this is the reason I've made this decision. And whatever that decision might be, if it's communicated in the right way, with some reasoning behind it, with something backing it up, with some explanations and some understanding of where that decision came from. And if you can communicate that to the people that are affected by the decision in the right way, the relationship has a far greater chance of surviving, of understanding why that, that decision was made in the first place and getting on board to back it. Now, the second part of this is that any decision or plan or strategy does not have to be and shouldn't ever be set in stone. I always say to people when we write race strategies, write them in pencil. There's no point penning a race strategy because it will change. Write your strategies, write your plans in pencil, because almost always, as time changes, as the world around us changes, the environment changes, as the rules change that we're operating under, things change all of the time. We learn new things, we experience new things, which then change the inputs that we would have put into that plan. So be open to changing your plan. And look, if we go back to this whole thing at Red Bull that we started this conversation with, this idea that Red Bull's relationship between drivers is starting, albeit at this early stage, to show cracks in it. What can Red Bull do about this? Well, what they should have done, and maybe they did do this, is have these conversations, of course, at the start of the year. But if this is the very first time they're starting to see these little imperfections occurring within this really important relationship in the team, now is a better time than doing it tomorrow. Yesterday may have been better, but now is better than doing it later. So having a conversation about it, getting it out in the open, talking about status, talking about a plan, talking about equal opportunity, talking about each one, each person being valued, bringing in the different levels of experience they have. And they do have very different things they can offer to this team. It may well still be that Max Verstappen ends up being team leader purely based on results as the season plays out. Or it could be that Checo finds a new level. That Max has a little bit of bad luck and that Checo ends up level pegging himself all the way throughout this season right towards the very end. And tensions will get raised. But if trust has been built within the team because communication has been good, because value has been shared amongst the team members from a very early stage and communicated properly as well, if those things have happened from early on, you have a much better chance of that relationship surviving. In terms of our children or our relationships out in the real world, exactly the same thing applies. Communication around relationships is vitally important. Go back and listen to last week's episode if you haven't already. It's all about the practice of listening in relationships. Communicating and listening are the same thing. They're two halves of the same thing. And understanding how important that is and the practice around that is vital. But this is the decision in the beginning to have that communication is just as vital. And those are the kind of decisions that need to be made as early in a relationship as possible. I mean, if you're dating somebody, a brand new relationship, potential romantic relationship on the horizon, this kind of communication is absolutely key. Setting your stall out, setting out expectations, setting out where you see value, where you want value, what you want from a relationship, what you need from a relationship, what you can offer to a relationship. Getting those things out on the table, having a discussion like that can be vitally important to the success or failure of that relationship. And in fact, failure is the wrong word because if you get those conversations out on the table, it may well be that you find it's not the right relationship for you because maybe it can't tick the kind of boxes that you're after. But having the conversation, having the communication early is a key part of trying to figure out whether that relationship has value in the long run or not. And if you know that early, you can either decide to pursue it or not. Maybe you decide not to and move on to something else. In Formula One driver terms, we may not be able to flippantly throw one away halfway through a season if we don't think it's going to work out but that's why it's so important to have the conversations early on, long before that happens, before the decisions are even made about who your driver pairing is going to be. In 2007, we signed Fernando Alonso, I think over a year before he actually drove one of our cars. A long build-up time before he became a McLaren driver was the initial conversation about whether he should be a McLaren driver or not. And... Not that I want to blame any of this solely on Fernando Alonso, because it certainly wasn't all down to any one driver or any one individual, quite frankly. But we didn't have enough of those conversations. We didn't have enough of those discussions internally as a team about who might work with each other. And even if we didn't know whether they'd be paired nicely together, when we did put them together, we didn't have the conversations about how it should and could work together. If you fast forward a few years and look at the relationship between Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg, which was also fractured at times, at least what Mercedes did better than us in those years of 2015 to 17, I think, or 2015 to 16, it was a relationship that was certainly based on transparency. The team were very clear in being transparent about where their priorities were and the fact they didn't have priorities between one driver or another. They had very clear rules of engagement about who would get preferential strategy based on where they qualified or where they were sitting in the Grand Prix at the time of the first pit stop. These decisions are good ones because they are set out up front. And if you again go back to the relationships in your office, in your team at work, exactly the same thing can apply. What are we going to do if this happens? What do you think you should do if this occurrence happens, these are the possibilities that could come from the next few weeks. If it goes this way, what should we do? And if it goes this way, what should we do then? Those kind of conversations, which we we do not have enough of, particularly in the business world, but I think the same in our personal lives too, we don't have enough of those conversations. So when the situation happens, we're almost caught out. We don't know which way to go. And it's implied, it's assumed in people's minds because that's exactly what we do. We make assumptions all of the time. We don't vocalise them, but we make assumptions. And because each party has their own assumptions, when it gets to the moment of making a decision, those assumptions are often not met. Those assumptions are often opposed to each other on each side of that team. It's what happened in 2007 in Formula One. It's almost certainly what happened in Saudi Arabia in the closing laps of that race. And it will be what happens as the season goes on for Red Bull and other drivers and teams in a similar situation. Having conversations to avoid assumptions that might not match expectations further down the line is absolutely critical. Whether you're a Formula One team manager or a parent, a business owner, a colleague at work, a team member in any section of life. Assumptions make for terrible outcomes, whereas conversations can prepare for much better ones. Now, I just want to wrap that up by saying if I was running that Red Bull team right now, I'd be pulling those two drivers into the team manager's office, into Christian Horner's office. And I'd be saying the kind of things that I've just been talking about. I'd be saying, listen, this is the situation, guys. There will never be preferential treatment to either of you guys unless it means that not doing so would be to the detriment of the team. If one guy has a better situation in a race, this is how we're going to play it if there's only one guy left potentially in a championship fight, then of course we're going to prioritise them. But until then, I want you to go out there knowing you have equal status and equal opportunity, if that's the way Red Bull want to play it. That's how I would play it. Now, deep down, I'm pretty sure that Max Verstappen would end up coming out of that fair and equal battle on top. That's my opinion. It may be the opinion of Red Bull, but by laying it out on the line like that, no driver can have any way to complain about preferential treatment not going their way. If the rules of engagement are laid out on the line, communicated in this super clear way, it can always be referred back to when there's any kind of dispute. And in fact, there's far less likely to be a dispute in the first place, because if you leave it up to the drivers to fight it out, if one comes out on top, it's probably going to be because they did a better job that maybe they did a better job in qualifying that gave them the preferential treatment in the race or gave them the advantage in a race. It may be that actually, given that they had a a better first stint in the race, it put them in a better position to optimise their race strategy, and that's what led to a better outcome. But if you trace it back, and it's always down to performance, about getting the right outcomes based on the driver and the team's performance, then that's fair. When there's a disparity in opinion and expectation and outcome, that's when the problems start to occur. And if you're a parent with teenage children or siblings, I mean, I've got twins. Imagine what that's like. It's like having two little Formula One drivers. They're the same age. They're going through the same things in life at the same times. They're going through the same elements of schooling at the same times. They're going through the same sections of life at the same times and yet they're two completely different people that deal with these things in different way. Now, I'm never going to give one priority or preference over the other, and they know that 100% because I've been super clear about it. I'm sure most parents are the same. We would share our love as parents between all four of my children equally. That has always been the case, and they know that just as much as I do laying it out on the line means that whenever one of my children throws this back, and this has happened when there's been an argument and my youngest children get all stroppy and they scream at me, well, you love her more than you love me. And I'm sure many parents have had it. (laughs) I will refer back to the conversations we've had previously. And I'll say, look, you know, that's not the case. You know, that will never be true. It never has been true. And it never will be true. We've had this discussion in a calmer moment. We've had this conversation. Do you remember it? And eventually they'll come round to the fact that, of course, that's not the reason. But because the conversation was had in the beginning, it gives us a much better path to go down as we move towards the future. I hope that makes some sense. Uh, Now, just before we move on, I want to say again, a big thank you for being here, but also a big thank you for helping me to share this podcast around by following or subscribing, no matter which platform you're listening or watching uh, the show on today. If you could just hit the subscribe button or the follow button, the like button, some platforms do it differently, but it makes a big, big difference. Whether we like it or not, these kind of shows, these podcasts are measured through metrics based around user engagement. That means you guys. So the one thing I ask of you that can make a massive difference to me is just to click that button. And if you can spare a moment to leave me a rating and review, particularly in the Apple podcast store, it genuinely means the world to me. It means the world to the podcast and it makes such a huge difference. So please, please, if you do anything for me this week, just try and do that. Thank you. Now, let's move it on. I want to still keep on the subject that's loosely related to Red Bull, because a lot of people have been writing to me over the past week or so. A lot of people have messaged me on social media, and I've heard a lot of people commentating or talking about this in the wider sphere of motorsport journalism, that Red Bull have a car that is pretty close to perfection in Formula One terms. I've heard a number of people use the word perfect when it comes to the RB19, Red Bull's car for 2023. Now make no mistake, this is an utterly dominant Formula 1 car. It's a car that is blisteringly quick. Even Lewis Hamilton came out recently and said it's the fastest car that he's ever seen on a racing track, that he's ever been up against. The most dominant car, I think maybe the words he used. But people talking about this car as being close to Formula 1 perfection. And I wanted to talk about that and explore that in a couple of different ways. First of all, the idea of perfection is one that almost is is incorrect in its very self. We can't use the word perfect. I'm not a believer that perfect exists anywhere in life. I think perfect is something we're striving towards. And I mean, you can use the analogy of the carrot dangling in front of the donkey's nose, can't you? It's something that the donkey will constantly be striving towards, constantly chasing forward to try and get closer to the carrot, but every step he takes, that carrot seemingly gets a bit further away. But it's a constant journey to get there. Perfection is the same thing. Perfection is something we can be continuously on the path towards, aiming for every single day, trying to get closer and closer to all throughout our lives But the point is we will never get there because every time we take a step closer to perfection, it gets a little bit further away. You can apply that, in my mind, to pretty much anything in life. And the same applies to a Formula One car. So, of course, to get that out in the open, straight from the off, it's not the perfect Formula One car because there's no such thing. Now, if it's not the perfect Formula One car, it is very, very good. I don't think anyone can question that. It's a car that is blindingly fast, blisteringly quick, dominant, and so much better than the competition. And that, I guess, is perhaps the part that I want to explore further in a moment. This idea that it's so much better than the competition. But when people start talking about anything, and particularly a Formula One car being perfect, I wanted to talk about what that might mean if you're part of that Red Bull team. Because if people start to, I mean, let's take, imagine that the car was perfect. If we all could agree that's the perfect Formula One car. Well, what would Red Bull do now? They might as well stop. I mean, you cannot, you can't get any better than perfection. Perfection is the end of the journey. And the journey in life and in Formula One and anything, it doesn't have an end. There is no end. There is no point where you reach the end and go, well, that's it. Because if Red Bull had got the perfect Formula One car, they may as well pack up and go home and stop. There is literally, in its very nature, nothing that can be improved on that car if it's perfect. But of course, that's not the case. So when people often talk to me about what do a Formula One team do, how do a Formula One team continue when they've got a car as good as Red Bull's? I mean, if you're a team down the back end of the grid, you've got this enormous target up front. People are looking at Red Bull with a target on their back. They're saying, look, Red Bull are so fast so good under the same set of regulations today we're operating at very similar cost levels. certainly for much of the grid due to the cost cap so they have spent and i'll put this in inverted commas as you're all laughing i'm sure in the background they have spent the same amount of money (laughs) as everybody else we're not going to go there they spent a similar amount of money to everyone else in formula one certainly in the, the the top three quarters of the grid let's say And they're operating under the same set of regulations. They've got pretty much the same types of resources. They're trying to overcome the same challenges. And yet they have turned out a car that is, as many people are describing it as, close to perfection. Now, if you're at the back of the grid, you've got something to measure your car against, haven't you? You're looking up the front of the grid and you're saying, look at Red Bull. That is incredible. Look at what they've managed to achieve. So if they can do it, we can do it we have to change some things. We've got to reassess what we've done because we've clearly made some mistakes. We clearly haven't maximised the opportunity here, whereas Red Bull may well have done. So there's scope for improvement for all those people further back down the grid. I mean, just look at Mercedes. That's exactly what they're doing right now. They're taking a very close look at the Red Bull car and holding their hands up and saying ours isn't good enough. So what we're going to do is going to have a look at Red Bulls because look how successful that car has been. We're going to take a very close look at that car and then see how we can implement our own version of it to get as close to that as possible. But if you're Red Bull and you're at the front of that field, you have no target in front of you. You have nothing in front of you to measure against. There is no yardstick about how far you could potentially go. People are talking about your car as perfection already, and yet you have somehow got to try and find ways to improve it. And we take the caveats of budget restrictions and penalties around aero resource restriction, all those kind of things. We take that out for the moment. The job of a Formula One team is to improve their car over the course of a season. If you're at the very front, how do you do that? And how do you know by how much is a decent improvement? at the start of every Formula One season, particularly when you don't have a big rule change, you go back into your factory at the end of the the season before with the car that has either been successful or otherwise or somewhere in between for you. And you look at that car and you analyze it and you try and improve it. You've been doing it all season, but when it comes to finalizing the car for the following season, over the course of that winter, you're looking for some major improvements in lots of areas of that car. And what you can do is you can measure... The performance increase, uh, the performance improvement, because you had a measurement, you had a yardstick of where you were at the end of last season. You may well have had measurements of where other teams were in front of you. So you know the scope of performance that was available last year. And then you add on a bit because over the winter, everyone's going to improve, everyone's got time, it's got resource being thrown at the problem. And what you do is you come up with a percentage improvement as a target for yourselves. You say, I want to improve my car from last year to this year by a certain percentage. And then when you finally hit the racetrack, you know, you find out whether you were close to that, whether you've exceeded it or whether you didn't quite match up to it. And we know there's certain teams this year, some have exceeded those expectations. Red Bull's clearly one of those. Whereas others like McLaren and Mercedes just haven't got anywhere close to the targets they set themselves. But the point was they had targets. At Red Bull, they've got a car that people are talking about as perfection. So what is the target? How do they go about improving it? And I'm not just talking about the technical side of this, because that's a challenge in itself. How on earth do you go about looking for improvements in a car that is already incredibly fast in almost every area? I mean, when we talk about, the people are talking about this car as perfection, by the way, because it seemingly has everything. It has blistering top speed, and yet it doesn't seem to come with the major compromise that many top speed cars have, by trading off downforce, and therefore the speed through the corners. They have the top speed, but they also have the downforce. They have the ultimate lap time as well. So they're not trading one of these traits off against another like most cars would typically do. You can design a car that's very, very fast through the corners, yet slow on the straights, because it has loads of downforce piled on, but that comes with a drag penalty. Or you can do the opposite, or you can fine tune it and find a balance somewhere in between what Red Bull have seemingly done with their 2023 car is maximise all of those traits. And that's the thing that has led people to talk about this word perfection in association with their car. Now, there's that technical challenge of where do you go about improving? How do you find improvements on those things? And of course, there are some, there's going to be reliability improvements they can make. There'll be the tiny minute changes and the little feelings that the drivers have about where the car might be a little bit unstable or a little bit out of balance, they'll be able to fine-tune those things through setup. But as they go through the season and they have to bring their strategic upgrades, whereabouts do they put those? So that's one challenge. But the other challenge, and perhaps the, the even bigger one, perhaps the one that's even more important when you're talking about a team of people, is the challenge of motivating that team of people to continually work to the same levels that got them there in the first place when they see almost no room for improvement. And that is the challenge that all teams at the top of their game face. Individuals face the same thing. When you are leading the pack, when you are the best of the best, when you are number one in your game, top of your particular business sector, when you're having success and riding the crest of a wave, how on earth do you motivate yourself to continuously strive to be better when you're already ticking all of those boxes, when you're being celebrated, when the world around you is talking about you being perfect? That's a human challenge that humans in teams have faced forever. It's a challenge that I get asked about all of the time when I go and see companies. Sometimes I go and see companies who are struggling, who are trying to get themselves out of the mid or back of the pack and up towards the front. It's easy. Those challenges are easy because they can see where they've got to get to. They can see how other people are doing it. But when you're in Red Bull situation, there is nobody in front of you to measure against. There is nobody to chase. There's no absolute measurement or metric to measure yourself against in terms of the absolute improvement you need each race to stay in that position. When you're fighting to get out of the back of the pack, the motivation is the rewards that come with getting to the front. It's winning the races. It's getting on the podium. It's getting the trophies. It's the financial rewards that come with that. The bonuses, the prize money. Those are significant rewards, which people get out of bed for every morning. You can easily motivate a team to work harder, to work longer, to think smarter, to think outside the box, to give a little bit extra when there's a big dangling carrot of motivation right in front of them. But what about when there isn't? What about when they've got those accolades, when people are already talking about them being the best, when they've already got the trophies and the prizes and the rewards and the monetary recompense, the bonuses and prize money pots that have already been dished out because they won the race, because they got to the top, because they became the best. What motivates them then? Now, this is a challenge that many people face, and there's this whole idea that people call, they term it gold medal syndrome, that a gold medalist, and I may have talked about this before, apologies if I have, a gold medalist in the Olympics spends all of their life in their particular discipline, training, practicing, getting up at 4am, going through the hard grind, the struggle to put themselves in the position that one day they might make it to the Olympics. And then over that four-year period in the build-up, they're training even harder. They're getting out in the cold, the rain of the depths of winter. When it's still dark, they're out on the bike or they're out running. They're out training. When everyone else is tucked up in the comfort of their beds. And it's that motivation because it's the big prize. It's going to the Olympic final, trying to win a gold medal. And then one day, after all of that years and years of struggle and sacrifice, they get there and they win the gold medal, and all of their dreams have come true. And then what? And it's that question, then what? It's that question that's the hardest for many of those people to answer. And there are so many cases where that has led to depression. It's led to mental health issues. It's led to a lack of motivation, massive struggles psychologically, motivationally. It's led to health struggles, people disappearing off the edge of a cliff, because they got there. Every time they were up at 4am, it was because they were trying to get the gold medal. They were trying to achieve something. That gold medal represented perfection in their eyes. And because it represented perfection, and they achieved it, they got it. They had perfection in their hands. Someone hung it around their neck on the top step of a podium. There is nothing beyond perfection. And so what's going to get them up at 4 a.m. the next morning, the next year? What's going to get them out of bed to push through that struggle and train to try and improve? There's nothing more than perfection. So if all of your goals are centered around something that we term perfection, it might be a gold medal. It might be creating a Formula One car that wins every single Grand Prix in the season. What next? What do you do when you've got there? I've seen so many articles that have been talking about Red Bull winning every single race this season. And they may well do it. That's how good the car is. So how do you get those people out of bed in the morning and get them pushing and working hard? And you could throw the argument and say, well, they don't need to because they've already done it. That's uh, a foolish argument to make. There's a saying that we've always had in Formula One that says, if you stand still, you get left behind. And it could not be truer in the F1 world. No matter how good Red Bull are, and they are good as a team and they've got a great car, there are a bunch of others just behind them that are pushing because they can see a target and they will be relentlessly getting up at 4am, going through that struggle, training in the cold and the rain because they can see something on the horizon that might be just about achievable for them to overturn Red Bull. And even if it doesn't happen this season, it might happen next season. So if you're Red Bull, you've got to find something to get your people out of bed. You've got to find some way of motivating them and giving them something to grasp onto, to find some way of getting a bit more out of them, to making sure they're still willing to give the same amount that they gave in the beginning to get to where they got to today. And that's when you have to start reassessing your targets. So perfection, throw that idea out of the window. Perfection is something you should always be aiming for, but you will never get to. What you should be aiming for is this percentage improvement, an improvement over yesterday. And we can all do that. That's an infinite challenge. That's something that never comes to an end because no matter how good you are, there is always scope to be better. If your challenge in life is to be 1% better than yesterday, that's something that will never end. It's something you can achieve every day, but it's something that will never end. Because when you get up the next day, that same challenge is right there in front of you. The carrot dangling in front of your nose is still that same distance away from your mouth. You can't get it. But taking a few more steps forward is exactly the journey you need to get your people on to strive towards getting towards it. And so it's about reassessing targets. So at Red Bull or Formula One teams, quite frankly, any business that's doing well, and these are the processes that I go through when I go into companies to speak to them about this exact topic, is we start to set new targets. We reframe the targets for that organisation or for that team. And these targets have to be infinite. They have to be worded in a way that they can never be achieved, but they are always achievable. They are targets that can be strived towards that are are not so unattainable that nobody even thinks it's worth giving it a go. But they need to be unachievable in the sense that when you start to get closer to it, it gets further away. 1% better than yesterday. It's a perfect way to describe it. It summarises it. The percentage number is arbitrary, but that's the idea. It's looking to be better than you were when you tried it last. And so companies like Red Bull can start to set targets around qualifying percentage. Formula One is an incredibly measurable sport. The the, uh, stopwatch never lies. So we have a huge amount of data. Pit stops can be improved by a tiny percent. We're talking here about something that lasts for a couple of seconds, but it can still be improved. And we can start to set targets that are not simply about time, but about the repeatability of those pit stops. Can we get four pit stops within the 2.2 second margin. That repeatability when it comes to pit stops is a measurable target that's something that's attainable. Can we start to make sure that we do better in our pit stops over an average of 10 practices, for example, than we were yesterday? If our average pit stop time was 2.17 seconds over the 10 pit stops we practiced yesterday morning, Can we average a better number today, even if it's by a few hundredths of a second? There's a target there that can be improved. And when you improve it, that same target is still there for the following day. Can we improve the target from yesterday by 1%, by 0.1%? These infinite targets are something that I firmly believe everybody should be striving for in life. Simon Sinek, somebody you may have heard of. He's a a guy on the speaker circuit, a very powerful and successful TED talk. He talks about the infinite game, life being an infinite game. There is no end to our achievements, they should be infinite. And as a company, and as a business, and as an individual, quite frankly, if we set ourselves up for an infinite game, we will always have something to get us out of bed that motivates us, no matter how good we are, no matter how good we become. If you're a Red Bull and the world around you is talking about having the perfect Formula One car, it would be easy to take your foot off the gas. Whereas if you're Red Bull and you wake up every morning and you say, right, these are our targets in manufacturing, in finance, in R&D, all of these areas of our business. We want to improve what we did yesterday by 1%. And we measure those targets. And when we hit them, we celebrate them as a company and as a team. Shout from the rooftops about doing those targets well, about breaking through those targets. And you may not achieve it every single day, but it gives you something to strive towards. But by celebrating it in the same way you might celebrate a world championship, by celebrating it in the same way you might celebrate having the best car in Formula One, it makes those targets worth striving for. It gives motivation to the people that you need to help you strive for those targets. And that is exactly what a powerful team should be able to do. So perfection doesn't exist. Aim for something that's infinite. Keep a target that's movable. Something you can continually strive towards that means something to you that has purpose and reasoning behind it. Something that can be celebrated when you achieve it, but it still moves the target further away for the next time. Those are the kind of motivations that are continuous. And for a business and for you and I in our lives, those are the kind of things that keep us going. Continuous improvement is at the very heart of Formula One. It's literally what Formula One is centred around. Marginal gains, continuous improvement, looking to be better today than we were yesterday, but tomorrow to be even better still. That kind of mythology, that kind of ideology is something that got me out of bed every day I got up and went to work in a Formula One team, even when we were winning and when we were the best. And it still does the same thing for me today. My targets are completely different. My targets have changed enormously. And quite frankly, they change all of the time. I constantly reassess my targets to make sure that it's something that's there and worthy of me getting out of bed and striving towards. And as I get close to it, I know that target will continue to just be out of reach. But in my life, I'm on this constant journey of improvement, of getting better every day. And as a result of those things, my life improves. I achieve more. My relationships get better. My work life improves. I get closer towards the things that I want to achieve, even though there is no definitive ending in sight. It's an infinite game, a continuous game of improvement, and that is exactly where Red Bull needs to be right now with their RB19, that many people call perfect, the reality being there is no such thing. It's a great car, but even if only in the smallest way, It can be improved over what it was yesterday. And when it comes to tomorrow, it can be improved again. That's what a Formula One team does very, very well. And that's what I want you to think about more this week. Think about managing those relationships like we talked earlier on. Think about what you would do if you were the leader of a Formula One team. How would you manage Checo and Max Verstappen? How would you manage Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso? Think about those things because managing those relationships in a transparent and clear and fair way, having those difficult conversations, and they are difficult sometimes, but having those conversations can lead to a much clearer path and a much more successful, fulfilling relationship further down the line, where the difficult challenges don't pose quite the same threat to the relationship. And also, Just start to think about this idea of perfection being non-existent. Think about how you can apply that to your own lives. Think about changing and reframing the challenges that you set yourself in life. What are you striving towards? Are you striving towards something that when you get there, that's the end? And what are you going to do next? You know, these people who their dream is to become a millionaire. One day they might get there and then what? Ask yourself if you get there then what? What next? What are you going to do if you finally tick the box? Or might it be better to reframe that goal, reframe that target? Have a think about changing it so that you're not striving for something that you might term perfection, but you're striving for something that will always be just out of reach, but that will keep you moving forward and continuously improving in your lives. It's a worthwhile pursuit. That's exactly what it is. It's a pursuit. There is no destination called perfection. It's a pursuit of perfection. It's a journey that gets you closer and closer and closer to being the best you can be. But you will never get there. And understanding that and knowing that and getting comfortable with that can literally change your life. Whatever it is you're up to this week, guys, have an incredible week. Please do give me a like, a follow, a subscribe. I'd love to know if and how any of these topics have helped you in your life. And in the meantime, before we speak again, don't forget this. Do the right things. Do the things right.